What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. Sylvia Richardson is uh, my guest for tonight. Sylvia, are you there? Yes, I am. Charles. Yes, she is there. Okay, Sylvia. <laughs> Sylvia, thanks for dropping in and saying hello to us from where? Out in Burnaby somewhere. Yes. Ah, well, okay. Glad we've got you. Okay, Sylvia Richardson, just let me tell folks, Sylvia is a PhD student. She's in arts education, faculty of education up at SFU, and she's a host of a program called Latin Waves. Now, I have before me, Sylvia, uh, a, 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 a book cover with a paint. Is it a painting? Yes. It's a painting of a face that looks fractured. And, and it kind of, like, it looks like a duplication, but it looks like it's sort of fractured. There's some technique that's been used to quite haunted eyes, and I would say distressed look on her face. And it's called Flesh Mapping, Cartography of Struggle, Renewal, and Hope in Education. That's your new book. Yes. Well, tell us, first of all, a little bit about the book, Sylvia, right off the top. Tell us what kind of book it is and what one would find in it if you were to open the cover. Mm. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the invitation, Charles. And um, I want to say that uh, flesh mapping is my response to um, the kind of violence that we live today in a society living in the era of neoliberalism. And so it's the story of um, an academic, uh, such as myself, going through the academy. But it's more than that. It's the story of the immigrant. It's the story of a child um, escaping from war. It's the story of us struggling to uh, contend with the uh, violence imposed by, I would say, an academic arrogance uh, that denies the voices of ordinary people. And so the book really is um, an invitation uh, for us who consider ourselves progressives, for people who struggle every day in minimum wage jobs, to envision what a walking together, what society could look like, who and what we can be, you know, when we stand together. And to realize that this era is not static, it can change. And so what you find in the book is the multiple stories that inform who I am today as an activist, who I am today as a scholar, who I am today as as an artist. 
So, Sylvia, is is this a book of 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 short stories? Is it fiction? Is it poetry? Tell you know, really, just kind of give the sort of basics of it. it. Because when I'm looking at the book outline, it has a number of chapters and it has different names. It says "Living as Praxis," "The Age of Innocence," Chapter Two, "Tough Times," Chapter Three, "Seeds of Discontent." So, what are these chapters? Are these? Uh, is it an essay, an argument, or is it a, a, a work of fiction? Um, well, I I guess we would say that all stories are fiction, um, and I would argue that all research is storytelling. And the reason why I make that claim is that uh, the book is a series of stories. It's um, a way of looking through one life and the multiple scars that sort of mark you know, that the define, um, it's, it's an autographical story, so it's the story of my life, but it's the story of multiple people who are part of that story. And so, in using the term flash mapping, I'm kind of using the word mapping subversively, right? Mapping has always been a colonizing uh, process of demarcating the land and instantly creating these barriers between one another. You know, of defining a place that we de- we call home as a country or a place that has borders, and so in many ways the word is being used subversively to co-opt it to realize that just the way that maps divide us and create um, abstract ideas about whose life, um, who belongs where, you know, who the stranger is among us. Also, the scars that are imposed on our bodies by war, by hunger, by poverty, also are sites of identification. And in this case, the the mapping um, of those stories, the mapping of those scars, is a way of locating us. It's a way of finding one another, of, you know, finding a way to hear our voices, you know, in this world that, um, you know, tends to alienate us through economic policies, through institutional uh, hierarchical uh, ways of seeing and understanding each other. You know, that's a very interesting and important topic for everyone who lives anywhere between Tierra del Fuego and the Arctic North Pole. Because this whole huge landmass was occupied by myriad nations of people with their languages, their culture, their way of life. And they've been here for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And they actually, in their own manner, mapped the area. Mm-hmm. Like Because I, I was having a conversation with a, with a Kutnaka or Kutni elder from the... Columbia Basin area, and there, and so, and then we were, we were talking about, you know, geography, and so, and he says, well, you people don't think we had boundaries, but we had boundaries. We knew what was Kootenai territory. We knew what was Blackfoot territory. We knew who was who and, and who was where. And then you, colonial settlers from Europe, who had gone through your own nation-building business in Europe, brought all your prejudices of maps and lines, and you drew all lines around this humongous territory, for possession purposes, for establishing who 
ruled what? By conquest, or because often it wasn't like here that indigenous people tell you, Sylvia, well, there was no conquest. We were never conquered. Who the hell are you talking about? So do you know what I'm saying? So there's a whole lot to be discussed about mapping and drawing boundaries in this world that we live in, that we inhabit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal story? If it's a little bit autobiographical, why don't you share your life a little bit with us and tell us where you came from and some of the conditions that you experienced when you were a youth, a child, and then and then coming to Canada and so on. In telling the story of who I am, I'm telling the story of multiple people. I'm telling you the story of my parents. I'm telling you the story of the different communities that form who I am. So um, I guess my story... Um, and and all stories really are fragments, right, of uh, locating ourselves where we are. And I begin by locating myself um, among a people, um, you know, who who I call members of the landless and poor. <laughs> and because my parents um, were incredibly talented people, incredibly uh, creative. And but their skills and their abilities were constantly devalued in a society of markets, in a society that recognizes privilege and power, but doesn't recognize um, the the way the workers, you know, form and create the world. So I'll tell the story the way I tell it in my book because the stories of ordinary people are the stories of extraordinary lives of living with no water, of, you know, making meals out of nothing, you know, of uh, gathering um, leaves and making uh, making something of substance that sustains your children when your lands have been ravished by mining companies, um, of uh, creating art out of, you know, the, <laughs> the remnants uh, that you find around you, of seeing beauty in um, what others consider um, garbage, what others would, uh, in, in, in a colonial uh, setting, may not appreciate. So it's, it's recognizing that um, the poor are hungry, not because they're not hardworking, not because they're not uh, striving, but because we live uh, in what I call, um, you know, a society that creates markets of want. And so... I, I begin my, my story by writing a poem, and I write, To be poor is to know hunger, like stabbing needles piercing the depths of your stomach, like battery acid corrosive fire that consumes you. Listen, you will hear the chorus. We can't afford the increase to increase the minimum salary for workers. We can't afford to increase funding for education. We cannot afford to create full employment. We certainly cannot afford to provide clean water. We can't afford to provide food for children. Dying of hunger-related diseases. We cannot afford to provide generic drugs to alleviate the suffering of AIDS victims in Africa. And we certainly can't afford to cut down CO2 emissions of extractive industries. And we, on and on it goes, right? We hear the stories all the time. You know, we are living in that moment today where in the midst of the worst economic crisis, we are told we have to cut even more. 
to the sustaining fabrics of society, to the infrastructure that is um, it, it's barely sustaining um, our society today. So uh, I, I see the world through these relationships. I don't see the world um, through independent moments. I see them as interconnected. And so from my poem, I ask the question, because I see this world um, as being cut in the fly of <laughs> in the fly paper of capitalism, you know, where poverty and hunger becomes destiny, as we become stagnant, choked to death by walls and violence, the way a river dies slowly, silenced by dams. Mm. Isn't the time we flow? Uh-huh. Now, do you mind? Where were you, where were you raised as a child? El Salvador. All right. So El Salvador is well known to Canadians, I think, by and large. It's a it's the smallest country in Central America, I think, mm-hmm. but it has a very large population. It's um, it has uh, uh, an ancient ancient indigenous population, which was practically obliterated. I think the the Wikipedia says it lost about 80% of its indigenous population by 15, 20 through smallpox and so on, not unlike British Columbia, right? That's right. So there's that trauma that must be part of the consciousness of the people. Plus, El Salvador was dragged through quite a bitter civil war for a period of time in the 1980s. Is that, is that, yes. is that a good, is that a correct? And so that left some scars as well. And then most recently, there has been a kind of um, a hope in a resistance against the neoliberal agenda, as I understand it, through the new president, or the not so new president, but uh, the, the man who was elected from from the left. Tell me the name of the, the government, the, the, the ruling party there. Well, the the FMLN, which came um, out of the resistance uh, movement, has um, has been elected. So, <laughs> your former terrorist, as you know, the government in Canada likes to call it, is now the government, right? And so, it depends on how you want to um, who you want to discriminate against. But in in reality, the FMLN um, under Funes. This, the FMLN finally came to power in 2009. Now, what we have to remember is that our stories are interlinked, our stories are interconnected, and El Salvador went through a bloody um, period between during the 1980s. It was called the Dirty Wars, and not just El Salvador, but Guatemala, Honduras. And El Salvador, in particular, I, I would say Guatemala, and, uh, Guatemala, and El Salvador uh, were particularly impacted by um, the brutality of the war and and how the genocide was conducted. Over 150,000 people died in El Salvador. More than 200,000 people dying in in Guatemala, and that doesn't even speak. And I hate doing that. I hate saying those numbers because. Those are not just numbers. Those are people. Those are families that were impacted. Those are communities that were um, that were destroyed. And so, to tell that story um, is to understand um, the processes uh, that terror brings. That the power. Um, that is productive. <laughs> we always think that, you know, these places are just violent. Oh, isn't it curious how in some places there's such violence? People don't talk about El Salvador today, but if you look 
of the world, um, there are places where the homicide rates are so high, and we're not at war. We had a peace accord signed, you know, brokered by Canada in the 1990s, and now we have more inequality, higher unemployment, more hunger, and more people being killed on a regular basis than during the war. So where, what, what was achieved? You know, and and those are the questions that I'm, I ask, right? Because our stories are interconnected, are, are complex. The policies that are being made in Canada to advance the interests of mining companies are directly impacting the lives of people in El Salvador. Are directly impacting the ability to, of people to survive. We have one major river, the Rio Lempa, and hydrologic, hydrological. Um, Estimations say that the the river has approximately seventy years, right? They do this uh, test of how long the river will be able to supply and provide, um, you know, life to that to that community. And when you think about the number of uh, dams that have been put on this river, this directly connects to the expansion of mining. Now, El Salvador did one thing with the election of Funes. It was the first country to declare a ban on mining. And this this audacity of a small country uh, daring to say no to something that is so directly intricate to, um, you know, the survival of its people um, has been met with a lot of uh, aggression. We are now, we are seeing El Salvador being dragged through an international court, um, you know, calling this action as a, uh, what do you call it, an aberration to trade agreements. And so there's a, there's a lawsuit. But the lawsuit, to me, is only part of the story. Because when we as workers ignore how our money is being invested in mining companies, how those mining companies produce and create cancer in the populations that are forced to live there, in the lands that are being appropriated, and the people who are being displaced, we are missing the story. Whether the mining company um, gets the permit is irrelevant, just like in Canada. If we are unable to stop the tar sands, if we're unable to connect our struggles for dignity, you know, this, the, you know, if we're unable to recognize that the struggle to live in a society that has safe food to eat, clean water to drink, clean air to breathe, <laughs> that those things are interconnected and that my life is not more important than someone who lives in the Tarsand, than someone who lives in Calgary, than someone who lives in El Salvador, then, you know, only then, can we move together? Only then can we create and imagine different possibilities. So that's the story that I'm telling. I'm telling you my story, not so that you can know my story, because my story is not just mine. It's the story of all those people together. Well, well there certainly is a lot of interconnectedness, no doubt about that, Sylvia, especially with modern capitalism. It's... it's uh a very highly technically sophisticated society. Its communication systems are very, very complex. Plus, air transport, uh, you can move mining officials. I, I would assume a mining executive has got his private executive jet. He can zip down from Vancouver to uh, Salvador in El Salvador in, what, 
five, six hours, seven hours, whatever, and, uh, you know, take command of his uh, project. Is this a gold and copper that they're taking out of the mine in El Salvador? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's a gold mine, yeah. A gold mine. Yeah, and is it a Canadian gold? Is it? Yeah, it's, it's a Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. Yeah. yeah. Gold Corpus in Honduras and in, uh, in yeah. Guatemala. Yeah, well, Canadian, Canadian mining companies going after base metals are huge, and they are very, very profitable. And so there is this really arrogant, you can say empire building mentality, imperialist mentality. And, uh, and of course, they're all now embroiled in what they call corporate social responsibility. That's the new catchphrase. So have you caught that new catchphrase recently? Cor- I- corporate social responsibility. In other words, when you look at the mining that they're doing in El Salvador... You just don't know it, Sylvia, but they are being very responsible, and then they'll give you all the bullshit, right? But in reality, like you said, the river's being choked, people's lives are being diminished, their dignity is being run roughshod over, and even when a small country like that says, we don't want mining, they drag you through the courts and as a violator of so-called trade agreements, or not trade agreements at all, their investment agreements, which are imposed by the biggest powers over the weaker and, and smaller countries, generally speaking, by the big, powerful countries. I, I, I just want to say that, you know, while we need to be very aware that power consolidates privilege in the hands of just very few, um, that that power isn't static. That's what we have demonstrated um, in El Salvador. That's what people are demonstrating in Bolivia. That's what people are demonstrating in Venezuela. Power can also be overturned. Power can also be from the bottom up. Power can uh, be um, brought into being a power with rather than a power over, which is the kind of power the capitalism imposes. And what I'm asking, you know, and, and it really is only an invitation, but what I'm asking is that we have a bigger imagination, that we imagine, you know, what we are told is impossible, that we imagine ourselves uh, walking together, you know, for justice, you know, in a way to live in coexistence, to live um, as the as the Bolivian uh, people, the Aymara people say, to finally live in coexistence, to live well, not better, but to recognize that in order to do that, we all have to, you know, create a foundation of responsibility, a foundation where we are interdependent on one another and care for one another. You know, and Martin Luther King said it long ago that if we, if we are to have peace on earth, our loyalties must transcend our race, our tribe, our class, our nation. We have to, at some point, um, become radical community members, you know, meaning at the roots, and, and really strive to create not just human liberation, but to also liberate ourselves from this obsession to dominate Mother Nature and to recognize that we're interdependent and we are part of nature. So we have to change the ways we conceive the economy, the ways we imagine our social relations, so that we are truly um, able to live with dignity. You can have um, dignity in Canada when we are imposing mining and the deaths of children in El Salvador or in Honduras. You can expect to have peace and uh, in a world, a society without violence, when we're imposing, um, you know, economic 
policies of austerity in world in third world country as they call it there's no such thing as a third world there's one world and places where you know the, the countries are being asked to forego their malaria treatment to pay an IMF loan which is you know already questionable how those loans have come up to to gain those interests. So the question for us is like, what are, we, we know all those things, but what are we going to do together? How are we going to move together? And I, I think the reason I wrote the book is because before we can walk together, we need to know one another. We need to learn to recognize um, who are the immigrants. Why, why would people risk their lives? Why would people risk living a place where they're recognized, where they're respected, where they're loved, where they have a connection to uh, the place of their birth? Um, to go somewhere else where they're um, <laughs> where they're treated with disregard, where they're alienated and discriminated, and the reason is people don't choose. That's not a choice. People are forced to walk a journey to achieve justice, and many of us are still wandering <laughs> and walking. For most people I, I work with, more uh, as, a, as a radio journalist, most of the people I work with are people who have lived courageous lives, who have strive, struggled against terrible odds. Um, but we do it joyously. We recognize that those scars, those things that define our lives, are also our teachers. They also teach us to live with dignity. They also teach us the dignity is lived. We walk it or it dies. So um, in many ways, our struggle for liberation is a struggle to recognize our humanity is dependent on that ability to recognize one another and to stand with others. Settlers, you know, settler populations here in Canada, if we want to have a, a, a sustained system, a, a, a system of dignity, we need to uh, ally our efforts behind First Nations people. We need to recognize that we're not going to liberate other people where we walk together and live and we liberate ourselves walking together in solidarity not as saviors not as benevolent um charity givers but as you know as as brothers and sisters all as right. equals all right i i, I couldn't agree more that, that's summed up and there's a very famous song about that it says uh, no we want no condescending saviors do you know that song it's yes. the international it's a very famous song sylvia we just have a minute, so I need you to tell our listeners where they can find your book. And, 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 I, I, and I gather from your description, it's got some story narrative, it's got some poetry, it's got some polemical material, I, I'm assuming, something. It's, it's telling a story, mm-hmm. right? Flesh Mapping, um, the title of the book is Flesh Mapping, Cartography of Struggle, Renewal, and Hope in Education. The the part about hope is that I'm looking at um, Paul Frieri, who is um, my mentor, and he said that the radical commitment to human liberation does not become the prisoner of a circle of certainty. So we, it's not that we know where we're going, but by walking, by doing, by learning to be respectful and humble of what we don't know, um, it, it's how we find the answers in the way. So the book is published by Peter Lang, uh, and you can access it by going to Peter Lang Publishing. 
Revolution out of New York. You can also find it on Amazon, but I I would rather if you went directly to the publisher, Peter Lang Publishing. Um, it's also How do you spell double, it, Sylvia? Um, Peter Lang. Yep. It, it's uh, just Peter L A N G Lang Publishing. Okay. Peter Lang Publishing or Amazon. All right. Well, listen. Thank you for being with me for the last half hour. Thank you, Charles. I really appreciate your time, and to all your listeners. You know, walk with dignity. It means, you know, standing up. It's not always comfortable. It's not always um, easy. But, it, it, you know, we strengthen each other. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.